Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, fam-a-lam. It's time for another episode of Winding About Herstory, everyone's favorite women's history podcast where two besties with breasties chat about women from history you probably haven't heard of while drowning our sorrows in wine. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And Kelly has left the podcast because <laughs> she cannot fucking deal with me. I can't, can't deal with the fam-a-lam. The face you made <laughs> is why I keep saying it. I actually just finished editing our last episode mm-hmm. today, I, know, I, saw that. I saw that and that we just start the episode laughing like a couple of assholes <laughs> made me laugh like an asshole so hopefully it made you guys laugh like assholes yes just spreading the asshole laugh <laughs> <laughs> all right well it is week two of black history month and we're super excited i am really jazzed about covering my lady today i am too she's i'm so excited of a fucking badass well, all the women we cover are yes but this woman in particular is just like fuck you fuck you and fuck you too nice. <laughs> and the horse you rode in on <laughs> just to be safe yep so uh first of all i'm going to introduce our wine i uh very carefully selected this from the discount bin that's right next to the checkout where, you know. After I was like, Emily, buy a discount wine. Yes. That one's pretty. <laughs> well, I thought about because I was already buying two wines and Kelly's like, well, I'm going to get a third. I'm like, well, I guess if you're getting a third, <laughs> I'll get a third. And this one has a really. Which makes us sound so like educated when we're at the wine store instead of just being like, yeah, that one looks good. That's a pretty label. That's like literally that's what, what I do, do though. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, this one has a very pretty label. It actually reminds me a lot of Tangled, yeah, like the I, Disney yeah, movie, because yeah. it's uh, it's a white circular sticker that has like a compass with pinks and purples and golds on it, and it's a uh, Mathilde Capotoire. I'm t- I'm making this shit up. I don't know what I'm saying right now. Uh, Appellation Cote de Provence Controlée Grand Farage 2018. And uh, because all that's written on the li- on the bottle is the government warning, according to the Surgeon General, women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy. I didn't think that was going to add pregnancy at the end for a second. I Just- was like, excuse you. <laughs> We're drinking this wine all wrong. But I did find a uh, description online. Uh, so pale pink in color, this rosé is fruit forward and well structured with bright acidity. Aromas of peach, citrus, and tropical fruit lead to a round, delicious palate with flavors of stone fruit and a silky mouthfeel. I love, love the mouthfeel when they talk about mouthfeel because it's it's a thing. Like it's, yeah, it's you hear it and you're like, that's not a thing, but it's a thing. No, it's like this inherent thing in all of us. And someone finally decided to give a word to it, and unfortunately, that word was mouthfeel. But it's a thing. So, An accurate description. Yeah. So I've had discount wines bite me in the ass before because if you drink like cheap wine. Can, can it be worse than last week or two weeks ago? Well, no, it's that gives you a headache. Oh. Like you're halfway through your glass and you're like, why do I feel hung over? Because it's cheap, cheap wine. And that's kind we'll, of we'll our, see what it is. That's our arena. And I accept it. But hopefully I don't get a headache. So where are we cheersing to today? Oh, you pick. Um, okay. By the time this episode comes out, this is going to sound like the dumbest thing ever, but the first woman and openly gay coach to make it to a Super Bowl is playing in the Super Bowl today. San Francisco. Woo! Cheers. Cheers. 
Ooh, Ooh that's good. It does have a good mouth feel. It's real good. Very yeah. subtle, like kind of like you'd expect a rosé to be. Yeah, it's so some of the rosés we drink are like super fruity where it's just like grape juice, but it gets you drunk. This, this is, is like a subtle fruity. This feels like a grown-up rosé. This is grown-up. Oh, it it's does have good. a great mouth. It's it kind of coats your mouth, but not in a mm. bad way. By the way, so it's uh, Katie Sowers. She's the 49ers coach, and she's making history as the first female and openly gay person to coach at the Super Bowl. And like, That's awesome. Dude, I don't follow football. All the football talk I get is like peripheral from people in the office talking about right. it or my boyfriend talking about it. But when the Super Bowl comes, I usually just pick someone. I'm like, I kind of hope they win just so I feel like I'm a part of it. And it's always something super arbitrary and like made up. This time I'm feeling like a little more like, yes, God, I hope you win. I really hope she does. I really hope they win. That'd be cool. All right. So, Kelly, you're kicking us off today. I am. I am kicking us off. So I'm doing Shirley Chisholm. So she was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 30th, 1924. Shirley was the oldest of four daughters to immigrant parents Charles St. Hill, who was a factory worker from Guyana, and Ruby Seal St. Hill, who was a seamstress from from Barbados. Okay. So both her parents immigrated. Working class. Yes, very much so. Getting it done. She graduated from Brooklyn Girls High in 1942 and from Brooklyn College, cum laude, in 1946, where she won prizes on the debate team. Damn! Yeah, so she, I love she liked debating. I love how that goes from, oh, yeah, she comes from a, you know, poor immigrant family. Gra- yeah, grassroots. By the way, she's a genius and right. she killed school. Although professors encouraged her to consider a political career, she replied that she faced a double handicap as being both black and female. And she's not wrong. Yeah, right. That's how it was viewed. And it, that's still an issue. Right. So initially, Shirley worked as a nursery school teacher. And in 1949, she married Conrad Q. Chisholm, a private investigator. They would later divorce in 1977. Um, during that time, though, she earned her master's degree from Columbia University in early childhood education in 1951. And by 1960, she was a consultant to the New York Division of Daycare. So, you know, she's getting shit done. As a former daycare teacher, I bet she was a ton of fun to work with. Right. Because I bet she'd like work her debating skills in there. Like, I do want to wash my hands. Well, okay, counter... Uh, if you don't wash your hands, you could get really sick and die. You don't get to eat anything. Yeah, exactly. You can't wash my hands. That's what I thought. <laughs> Ever aware of her racial and gender and gender inequality, she she would join local chapters of the Women's League of Voters, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, the Urban League, as well as the Democratic Party Club of Bedford Stuyvesant. Brooklyn, which is like the neighborhood she lived in. Okay. It's hyphenated. Is that like Bed Stuy? Is that the nickname for it? Am I just making Probably, shit up? I think so. Okay. I don't know. They never referred to it as his nickname, but that would make sense. Okay. In 1964, Chisholm ran for and became the second African American in the New York State Legislature. That was quick. She's just like jumping yeah. through the story. She's like, uh, and I'm going to run for legislator now. It's didn't, it didn't really talk about, like, in none of the stuff I found, like, why she chose to run for legislator. She just 
did. She, it was way easier than taking care of fucking kids, right? man. Let's all be honest. It um, paid better. <laughs> in 1968, um, there was a court ordered redistricting. Redistricting. That's a hard word. I think that's right. Redistricting. Um, so they created a whole bunch of new districts. Particularly, her neighborhood ended up getting a very heavily Democratic district. And in and during that year, she sought and ended up winning a seat in Congress. Wow, surely so okay. She was, she was she was in the New York State Legislature for four years, and then won a seat in Congress. I thought you said this story was six pages. It is. This is the first paragraph, and we're already like, yeah, she's in Congress and she's killing it, right. and we exactly. love her. <laughs> her welcome was not warm in the House due to her immediate outspokenness. Quote. I have no intention of just sitting quietly and observing, she said. I intend to focus attention on the nation's problem, end quote. And she did just that. She lashed out against the Vietnam War in her first floor speech on March 26, 1969. She vowed to vote against any defense appropriation bill, quote, until the time comes when our values and priorities have been turned right side up again, end quote. It was very... It, it was not a politically savvy move to be against the Vietnam War for quite not a while. Because we, yeah. were, we were really into it. We're like, yeah, we're going to, you know, fuck up communism. Until very blah, suddenly blah, blah, blah. we weren't very into it. Like, it, it was a very radical 180. Yeah. Well, when the, the video footage and stuff started coming back and people were like, oh, man, war sucks, you guys. Right. This is awful. Yeah. It was bad. Um, she soon after she uh, was in the house. Besides challenging, you know, the Vietnam War, she was also challenging the House seniority system, which regulated her to its agricultural committee. This is a woman who's from a neighborhood in Brooklyn getting put on the agricultural committee. You know, corn. Um, she criticized it as a irrelevant because she was an urban district. Quote. Apparently, all they know here in Washington about Brooklyn is that a tree grew there. She oh, said, my God. That's what, she, that's what she said at the time. <laughs> Only nine black people have been elected to Congress, and those nine should be used as effectively as possible. End quote. That's such a... Like, I love how she's throwing shade here. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, no. All they know is the tree, a tree grew, grew here. Yeah, Fuck right? you. <laughs> um, she actually went on to... Um, Talked to the Speaker of the House at the time, who was John W. McCormick, and he told her to be, to be a good soldier and accept the agricultural assignment. Instead, she fired a parliamentary salvo at the Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Wil- Wilbur D. Mills, who handed out committee assignments. Before long, she got reassigned to first the Veteran Affairs Committee, um, which was not her top choice, but was more relevant. And she said, quote, there are a lot more veterans in my district than there are trees, end quote. This is true. Okay, so I didn't understand a whole string of words there. You said, yep. like, she fired back at some She fired dude. a parliamentary salvo. Um, so she, she, like, fired him like you don't have a job no, anymore. She, she, like, sent him a memo, basically. Oh, okay. She sent him a strongly worded um, memo. I mean, technically, a salvo is, it has multiple meanings, one of which is a simultaneous discharge of artillery or other guns in battle, but it's also a sudden, vigorous, or aggressive act or a series of acts. So basically, she okay. was like, hey, I shouldn't be on this committee. Like, she pushed this is back. stupid. Yeah. And she went to, like, the person who hands out committee assignments and was like, no, give me something else. With all due respect... 
fuck you. Right. Um, <laughs> that was how that memo started. <laughs> to whom it may concern, if you could you. pull your head out of your ass, that would be great. Right. We have one tree. We have fuck one you. tree. Uh, I know you might be dying. Corn. <laughs> I'm exclusively a carnivore. I don't know anything about agriculture. I don't right. know why you think I would. That'd be so funny. <laughs> um, however, winning a better committee assignment did not make her any less. Um, aggressive on the workings of Washington. Quote, our representative democracy is not working, she wrote um, in a book that borrowed her campaign slogan, which I'll talk about later, because the Congress that is supposed to represent the voters does not respond to their needs. I believe the chief reason for this is that it is ruled by a small group of old men. And she's super not wrong. Right. She's right she's on the button. calling them out, though. Oh, yeah. She's like, hey, I'm here, and uh, y'all are about to get your shit <laughs> turned right. up. So after her assignment on the Veterans Affairs Committee, she moved, um, in 1971, she moved on to the Committee for on Education and Labor, which is right up her alley. Oh, yeah. And in 1971, she began exploring options to run for president, and she formally announced her presidential bid on January 25th, 1972, in a Baptist church in her district in Brooklyn. And why was she not her first black president? Lots of reasons. God damn. I know, it's How dumb. How cool it's would that have been? super dumb, but yeah. Oh my God. Um, she, When she announced her presidential bid, she called for a, quote, bloodless revolution, end quote. And she called for it to come at the Democratic nomination convention to be like, hey, let's make a revolution and, you know, get my name on the ballot kind of a thing. Yeah. She became the first black major party candidate to run for president of the United States. And she was also the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. And there, I know there was a woman who was like the first Senator woman Margaret to run for Chase president. Senator Margaret Chase Smith ran as a Republican presidential nomination in 1964. There was someone way back, though... Who, like, I don't think she was on a major party. Yeah, maybe but not. But she, she, I think she was, like, the first woman woman to run for president. And we haven't covered her. I don't know why. Maybe. The, I don't know either. In honor of the 2020 election. Right. <laughs> um, in her presidential announcement, Shirley describes herself as a representative of the people and offered a new articulation of American identity. Quote, I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman and equally proud of that. I am the candidate of the people and my presence before you symbolizes a new era in American political history, end quote. That is so cool. Right. Because she's like, hey, I'm a woman and that's great and I own it. I'm and also I'm black. Bl- which is great. And, and I, I own great it. And I own it. But I'm, I'm for everyone. Yeah. Like that doesn't exclude me for looking out for the interest of right. men and, you know, white people and everyone else because while I am all of these things, I am everything for everyone. I am basically. That's awesome though. Right. Her campaign was severely underfunded though and only it cost about three hundred thousand dollars in total, which is super low for a presidential campaign. Fucking nothing. Oh my God. She also struggled to be regarded as a serious candidate instead of a symbolical presidential figure. Or a political figure. Uh, she was ignored by much of the Democratic political establishment and Guys. received little support from her black male colleagues. Guys! Right? She later said, quote, When I ran for Congress, when I ran for president, I met I met more discrimination as a woman than for being black. 
men are men, end quote. I hate how I'm like, uh, yeah. Well, especially at this time. <laughs> yeah. Like. Well, and we talked about it uh, when we were kind of talking about Claudette Colvin and the civil rights movement. It's largely thought of as a men's movement and actually right. women's contributions. And members of the LGBTQ plus community also are often undermined. Yeah, they're pushed aside. It's, you know, it was all these like men in suits. It's like, no, it's right. a lot of common people, a lot of young people and a yeah, ton of women. Exactly. She expressed a lot of frustration about the, quote, black matriarch thing, saying they think I am trying to take their power from them. And that's always kind of been a thing is that a lot of men, yeah, feel either emasculated or like women are trying to take their power. And I guess that she said that was a big thing. Well, when you're in a position of power for so long, for anyone else to rise to your level, you you automatically right. kind of have that feel that they're taking something away from me. Exactly. The rest of her quote is, the black man must step forward, but that doesn't mean the black woman must step back. Oh, my End God. Quote. Surely, honey, I love you. Her husband was fully supportive of her candidacy and said, quote, I have no hangups about a woman running for president. End quote. Which is cool. This is the P.I.? Uh, I know you said she divorced him eventually, but in '77. So yes, this is this, okay. This is the PI man, a little king crown for him. Good right? for you, sir. Um, she also had security problems because um during during her campaign she had three confirmed threats against her life. Um, however, for um the first several months, so she announced her candidacy in January f- until May. It was her husband that served as her bodyguard until finally the U.S. Secret Service would provide her protection in May. So do uh, other presidential candidates usually get Secret Service protection once they announce their candidacy? I believe so. Oh, Jesus, I didn't really look into it at this time, but I'm pretty sure that's the standard. I feel like if they're mentioning it... Or they might hire their own. Yeah, but I feel like if they're mentioning it, it's like... It was probably normal, yeah. Yeah, it was was abnormal for her not to have security and to have her own fucking husband be like, babe, I got you. Right. I've got you. I'm on this. He's just waving (laughs) his arms around like, protect the package. Right. Oh, I'm spilling wine. Oh, no. It's okay, you didn't spill it on the magic box. I got licked off the table. (laughs) No. Shirley skipped the initial March 7th New Hampshire contest. Instead, focusing on the March 14th primary. So she skipped like the first primary and focused more attention on the second one. She thought that the Florida primary would be more receptive to her because of its blacks, youth and strong women's movement that was happening in Florida at the time. But due to organizational difficulties and congressional responsibilities, she only made two campaign trips there and only ended with about 3.5% of the vote for a seventh place finish. Oh, bummer. She had difficulties gaining ballot access in a lot of states, um, but did end up campaigning and receiving votes in primaries from 14 states. Wait, so she couldn't even get on the ballot? Yeah, that's a thing. I thought as a, you as just... candidates, you ha- you have to like get on the ballot for the uh, primaries, or at least you used to have to. I remember there was something about uh, during the 2016 election, like Bernie not being able to get on the ballot in some states and stuff. Well, that's what like, they're trying to do to Trump now, too. Yeah. But I'm just kind of like, I. And, and here's the thing. I'm not a fan of Trump, but I feel like, hey, if you want to run, you should be able to be on the ballot. And, you know, yeah, people aren't into you. They'll tell you, go fuck yourself. Her largest number of votes came in the June 6th California primary, which actually doesn't surprise me. California has always very been very open minded. Yeah. Um, where she received one thousand five. 
157,435 votes for 4.4% in a fourth place finish. Wow. While her best percentage in a competitive primary came um, from North Carolina, where she got 7.5% in a third place finish. Overall, she won 28 delegates during the primary process itself. Okay. Who's she running against during this time? I don't know who was um, around during this election. Let's see. Ford was president. And so I thought I put his name in there and I don't know where it is. I just want to know the winner. Honestly, I kind of. I, I think I have that in there later. I just okay. don't see it up right now. So obviously discrimination followed Shirley's quest during this presidential nomination. Um, she was blocked from participating in televised primary debates, and after taking legal action, she was permitted to make just one speech. What? Yep. So they're like, no, honey, go fuck yourself. I mean, it's kind of like we were talking about um, for Billie Holiday, where they didn't want her on stage with the white singers. Yeah. You know, I have a feeling this was probably similar. A lot of students, women, and minorities still followed what they called the Chisholm Trail. You know, her, her going, you know wherever she was going also while she was doing this she continued to promote causes that she had already espoused as a community activist so she didn't like get on the ballot and go i'm going to talk about all this different stuff she very much sponsored increases in federal funding for extended hours of daycare she guaranteed minimum annual income for families she was a fierce defender of federal assistance for education she served as the primary backer of a national school lunch bill. This sounds like a lot of the stuff we're still talking about today, even right. in this election. So it's and, like, and this is what she's doing in Congress, like yeah. during also running for president. She also led her colleagues in overriding President Ford's veto on the measure of the lunch bill. Like, So he vetoed it and he, she was like, no, we need to overturn this. This is something we need. Yeah. However, she never viewed herself as, quote, a lawmaker or an innovator in the field of legislation. So she didn't view herself as that. She's just trying to like, hey, this makes sense. Why don't we do it? We're the people who are right. supposed to be able to do this. Why aren't we doing exactly. it? And in, <laughs> Guys. Her, in her efforts to address what she called the needs of the have nots, she often chose to work outside the established system and at times criticized the Democratic leadership in Congress as much as she would criticize the Republicans in the White House. Right. She's um, like, guys, we can all do better here. Let's right. be honest. She viewed herself as an explorer and a trailblazer rather than a legislative artisan. I love her. Shirley, I wish you were our first black woman president. Right. I uh, guess I never put the guy's name that she lost to. Oh, well. Who became president? No, I or think, no, for the I think Democratic. For the de Democratic, because oh. a Republican became president. Okay, it was, and it was Ford. He was reelected. Mm, was no. Ford Kennedy's vice president? I feel like we should know presidents, but we. You don't. know, if you guys really want to learn more about the presidencies of the United States, please check out presidencies, presidencies of the United States of the United States podcast. It's an excellent podcast that goes into the history and just how the whole system works. We were featured on an episode about the primaries, and it was fucking awesome, and so go check that shit out. Okay. So it was Nixon, Ford, Carter. Oh, okay. So, no, Carter must have won, because he was Democratic, so. Okay. And, and Gerald Ford looks like only had one term. Okay. There we go. We learned things. Yay. It's good to learn things. 
Man, I I always feel bad for Jimmy Carter because like he's huge into Habitat for Humanity. He's kind of become right. one of these like I'm just like a really nice guy that wants to help people. Like that's kind of his whole aesthetic. Yeah. But as a president, no one fucking liked him. No, the Republicans didn't want him. The Democrats didn't yeah, want was, him. I'm like, how did he not... get elected? And so he was really ineffective right. because he couldn't do shit. It was bad. How did you get elected? But he just seems like such a nice guy. Right. He was on King of the Hill. <laughs> so in 1974, a Gallup poll listed. Um, Shirley is one of the top 10 most admired women in America. She was ahead of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and Coretta Scott King. Oh, shit. And tied with the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi for sixth place. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's intense. God, can you imagine being one of those people on that list where it's like, these are like some of the most influential people of our time right and like to even be included but then to beat out people like jackie kennedy who was like way up there and credit scott king too oh yeah so while her presidential bid enhanced her national profile it also stirred a lot of controversy in the house among her colleagues um shirley's candidacy split the cbc which i didn't look up what that meant but i think it's like the. i don't want to be offensive so i'm gonna google it quick thank god for google I very much doubt that it's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> I was like, do you mean CDC? No, it's CBC. The Center for Disease Control. So we're just going to say CBC and move on. Okay. So um, so it's split the CBC and many black male colleagues felt that she had not consulted them or that she had betrayed the group's interest by trying to create a coalition of women, Hispanics, white liberals, and welfare recipients. That's how they felt. What? Hey, I'm getting more people in on our deal. That's betrayal. You're right. not looking out for us. I'm sorry. Right. I thought you wanted more people to be into this. Right. More pervasive than any racial thing was her gender discrimination, she noted. It cut across any racial lines. Quote, black male politicians are no different from white male politicians. This woman thing, unsexy air quotes, is so deep. That I've I've found out in this campaign if I never I I've found it out in this campaign if I never knew it before. End quote. That is so fucked up. Like it's shitty right. to it's shitty to draw lines based on race. But but you know I feel like it's always been justified. Like well you know we're just conditioned to be scared of the other and you know it's a it's right. another tribe and we don't know if they're gonna hurt us it's this deep-seated like reptile brain bullshit right but i'm sorry have there just never been chicks around right like, no, and she, was, she wasn't even she was the first black woman in congress but she wasn't the only woman in congress no i understand but what i'm saying is like oh, for the yeah. woman thing to be more offensive to everyone than like the yeah it's so it, weird it's I'm not saying one should be more offensive than the other. They should both be fine. But, like, that's just really right? sad. Right. And the thing is, her presidential campaign actually strained relations with other women members of Congress as well, particularly Bella Abzug of New York, who had endorsed, who in, had endorsed George McGovern instead of Shirley. Oh. So... This reminds me a lot of Audre Lorde and how she was really struggling with her own identity and finding a home and acceptance because she was a woman yeah. and she was black she didn't know where to and go. she was a lesbian. Yeah. Like, 
even if she found other black women, oh, but you're a lesbian. She couldn't be around black men. She couldn't be around white men. She couldn't be around white wit. Like, no yeah, one fully accepted her as a gay black woman. She had these, like, three things working against her. It's like what Shirley was talking about. She's got the two, quote, unsexy quotes, goddamn, handicaps of being black and a woman. Oh, I'm so yeah, angry. I know. By 1976... Shirley faced a stiff challenge from within her own party by longtime political rival New York City Councilman Samuel D. Wright. So this is back her being in Congress. Okay. Born and raised in Bedford Stuyvesant, Wright was a formidable opponent who represented Brooklyn in the New York Assembly for a number of years before winning a seat on the city council. He criticized Shirley for her absenteeism in the House brought on by the rigors of her presidential campaign and for the lack of connection with the district. Shirley countered by playing on her national credentials and her role as a reformer on Capitol Hill culture. Quote, I think my role is to break new ground in in Congress, she noted. She insisted that her strength was in bringing legislative factions together. Quote, I can talk with legislators from the South, the West, all over. They view me as a national figure and that makes me more acceptable. End quote. Two weeks later, Shirley turned back right and Hispanic political activists Luz Vega in the Democratic primary, winning 54% of the vote to Wright's 36% and Vega's 10%. She then went on to win the general election with 83% of the vote. Damn, Shirley! Right. Swish. So then in 1982, she finally decided, she finally declined to seek re-election. She told the Christian Science Monitor, quote, Shirley, Shirley Chisholm would like to have a little life of her own. End she's quote. she's like, hey, I've been fighting. I've been doing this thing. I'm ready to pursue other adventures. She also said, so she said that and she cited personal reasons for her decision to leave the house, such as she wanted to spend more time with her second husband, Arthur Hardwick, who she had married about six months after divorcing her first husband in 1977. He had also recently gotten in a car accident. So, Aww. you know, it was kind of the whole like, oh, life's, you know, we never know how much time we have left. Yeah. Um, there were other reasons, too. Um, she had grown dis- disillusioned over the cons- conservative turn the country had taken with the election of President Reagan in the 80- in 1980. Yeah. There was also a lot of tensions with people on her side of the political offense, particularly af- African-American politicians who, she insisted, misunderstood her efforts to build alliances. While her rhetoric about racial inequality could be passionate at times, her actions toward the white establishment in Congress were often conciliatory. She maintained that many members of the black community did not understand the need for negotiation with white politicians. Quote, we still have to engage in compromise, the highest of all arts, she noted. Blacks can't do things on their own, nor can whites. When you have black racists and white racists, it is very difficult to build bridges between the community, end quote. Yeah. I mean, it's like if we're all going to be in this together, we all need we to all work need to be together. in it together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In total, quote, fighting Shirley, end quote. Oh, my God. Fighting Shirley was her nickname. Yeah. That's Apparently. awesome. Um, She's so got the Chisholm Trail and the, the fighting, fighting Shirley. Shirley. So this is in total in her entire time in Congress. Um, She introduced more than 50 pieces of legislation, championed racial and gender equality, the plight of the poor, and obviously ending the Vietnam War, which obviously was over by the time she left. Right. Still. So she did it. Yeah, right. (laughs) Mission accomplished. Um, So she she officially retired from Congress in 1983 because, you know, 82 was when the term was up. 
And when she left Washington, she said she did not want to go down in history as, quote, the nation's first black congresswoman, or as she put it, the first black woman congressman. The first black woman congressman. I like she's like, congressman is not gendered. It's just a word. Yeah, exactly. Congresswoman is does not necessary. Right. <laughs> she later went on to say, quote, I'd like them to say Sh- Shirley Chisholm had guts. That's how I'd like to be remembered. Good for her. She's like, I don't want to be remembered as just. And that's like- why I didn't mention that she was the first black congresswoman until like later in my story. Right. Because that's not what she wanted. Well, because she she did it. There's a lot of uh, honor and greatness in being the first person to do something. Right. But that's but not what she wanted like, to be remembered. But I did so much with that opportunity right. and being the first. I exactly. wasn't just, I did a thing and that was it. Like, I did a lot of things. Exactly. Um, after leaving, she went on to teach at the Mount Holyoke College and co-founded the National Political Congress of Black Women. In 1991, she moved to Florida and later declined the nomination to become the U.S. ambassador to, to Jamaica due to ill health. Wow, that's cool. They offered that. Of her legacy, she said, quote, I want to be remembered as a woman who dared to be a catalyst of change. Aww. She died January 1st, 2005. No, I thought she was still alive. Damn it. In Ormond Beach near Daytona Beach after suffering several strokes. She is buried in the Oakwood Mausoleum at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Buffalo, where the legend inscribed on her vaults reads, unbought and unbossed. That was her campaign slogan. I never Unbought mentioned that. Unbought and unbossed. Unboss. That was her campaign slogan. It's the name of one of her books. And I think it's a, a amazing. Unbought and unbossed. so fucking badass. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to name this part of the episode. Unbought I, and unbossed. At first I was like, oh, the, 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 the Chisholm Trail. That's fun. Oh, the Fighting Shirley. That's even better. Unbought and unbossed. Like, that's going to that. have to yeah. be it. That's fantastic. So Legacy. The sh- so I have this broken down into sections. So the first section is legacy monuments. Oh my god! The Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn's women's activism, which was formerly known as the Shirley Chisholm Center for Research, exists at Brooklyn College to promote research projects and programs on women and to preserve the legacy of Shirley. Which I don't really know how that's a monument, but apparently it still fell into that section. Is it? I mean, it's a building. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, in January 2018, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his intent to build the Shirley Chisholm State Park, a 407-acre state park along 3.5 miles of Jama- the Jamaica Bay coastline, adjoining to the Pennsylvania Avenue and Fountain and- Avenue landfill south of Spring Pre- Creek Park Gateway Center section. That's, a- <laughs> That's one hell of an address. If you live there, every time you have one of those forms, you have to fill out your address. You're like, God damn it. My hand is cramping. Um, it did come to fruition and the state park was dedicated to Shirley September tw- 2018 and opened to the public July 2nd, 2019. Oh, that's so recent. I know. That just happened. So now political legacy. Um, her legacy obviously came came into renewed prominence during the 2008 Democratic presidential pri- primaries where Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton staged their historic, quote, firsts battle, where the victor would either be the first major, major party African-American nominee or the first woman nominee. Either one. Yep. Um, at least one observer credited Shirley's 1972 campaign with having paved the way for both of them. She died in 2005, right? Mm-hmm. Damn, so I know. she didn't even get to I know. see him I know, it's run. heartbreaking. Oh, she knows. Surely she knows. fucking knows. Right. 
Um, Shirley was a major influence on other women of color in politics, among them California Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who stated in 2017 that Shirley had a profound impact on her career. Like, she straight out was like, yeah, watching her do what she did. Yeah. You know, made me want to do what I do, basically. Kamala Harris recognized Shirley's presidential campaign by using a similar color scheme. And if you don't know who that is, that's actually someone running for president this year. I Is she still running? Uh, I guess I don't know. I didn't re-look it up, but she was. Yeah. She was running. She was. I thought I heard she dropped out, but I don't Um, know for sure. I will look that up in a second, but I will finish what I'm saying. That was still really cool, though. Yeah. So she she used a similar color scheme and typography in her presidential campaign's promotional materials and logo. The red and yellow design that can be seen in a video announcing her run for president, like, is this is... The similar logo. Right. Um, Also, she launched her presidential campaign 47 years to the day after Shirley's. Oh, so she's really like trying to pay tribute to Shirley. I don't know if she is or not, but it definitely seems like it. That's a a crazy series of coincidences if this is all an accident. Right. (laughs) Shirley who? Uh, I think she's still running. Okay, cool. President. <laughs> yeah, she's considered a high-profile candidate. Okay. I I thought I heard she dropped out, but never mind. Fuck me. At least not according to Wikipedia. Okay. Well, I mean, Wikipedia is never fucking wrong, you guys. Right. Donate to Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, wait. It says end of campaign. Maybe she... Oh, no! <laughs> oh, no. She did. December 3rd, 2019. So she did drop. Okay. She did drop out. Okay. She said she did not have enough funding. Okay. But did not immediately endorse another Democratic president. So she really did follow in Shirley's footsteps where she's got yeah. no fucking money for um, this. That's, that's a bummer. She, 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 did, she didn't endorse another candidate, but she did pledge to continue fighting to defeat Donald Trump. To which Trump sent a sarcastic farewell tweet, which said, too bad we will miss you. To which Harris replied, don't worry, Mr. President, I'll see you at your trial. Oh, shit. Which, I mean, that was a shit show and we're not going to get into that. Yeah. But... I love that she fired that back. Right. Okay, back to... So, yeah. Honors and awards is my next legacy section. My last legacy section. So she won... She she was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama. Good! I... Okay, when you were telling this story, I had it in my head. I was like, Barack Obama definitely gave Shirley an award and they had this beautiful moment and then when you said she died in 2005 I was like no but I'm glad she got it yes she still got it she, she still there. got it she um, knows yeah Shirley knows so in 1974 she was an awarded an honorary doctorate of laws degree by Aquinas College 75 she was an awarded an honorary honorary doctor of laws by Smith College in 1996 she was an Awarded an honorary doctorate of laws by Stetson University. So she's getting all of these honorary doctors. And this is all why she's still alive. She's like the most decorated honorary academic lady on the face of the planet. In 1991, Shirley was the commencement. So all of these places I gave her, like, there, she didn't commencement speak at all of them, but she did at a few of them. But this one, she commencement spoke at East Stroudsburg University in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania where she received the first ever conferred honorary doctorate from the university. So she was the first person to ever get it. Wow. Um, And there is now an annual student award created in her honor. So that's awesome. 
1993, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Good. Good. Yeah. <laughs> like, in, fucking better right? be. In 2002, scholar Malefi Ket Asante listed Shirley Chisholm on his list of 100 Greatest African Americans. On January 31st, the Shirley Chisholm Forever stamp was issued. It is the 37th stamp in the Black Heritage series of U.S. stamps. So for all of you history stamp collectors. Or Black Heritage series collectors. I mean, that too. falls into both. We, uh, and that's what's great about being black and a woman. (laughs) (laughs) So she also, she will receive a Monument and Prospects Park. It's scheduled for 2020. She is the first woman to be honored that way by She Built NYC. Nice. Yeah. So I, I gotta look that She Built NYC. NYC. Yeah. I gotta look that um, up. And then there's also the Ch- Shirley Chisholm Living Learning Community at Mount Hoylet College, where she taught in South Hadley, Massachusetts. It's a residential hall where students of African descent live. Aww. So that's kind of nice. Go Mount Holyoke. They're doing good stuff over there, apparently. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, is, she taught there, this so. This is all I know about Mount Holyoke College. Right. And it's all looking pretty good. Yeah, good job. Good job, you guys. Yeah, so that's Shirley Chisholm. You know, she kept popping up when I was, like, looking for yep. women to cover for this month. She kept popping up on the lists, and I had heard of her before, but didn't, like, well, fully know like, her story. And I mean, like, we were, I wouldn't say super active in the 20, 2008 presidential campaign, but, like, we were aware. Yeah. You know, and so we probably heard it there, you know, and that's, you know, it's I'm sure it's been more prominent since then. And so, yeah, that's probably where we've heard it before. I'm so sad she didn't get to see Barack Obama get elected, though. But she did so much shit. Oh, my God. So much good shit. God damn, Shirley. I hope her fans are called Fighting Shirley's. They better be. Yes. We're going to get we're going to get biker jackets and we're going to start a gal gonna gang. Say, it's going to say Fighting Girlfriend, Fighting Shirley. The we're going to have like Shirley's. all of these things on this jacket. We're going to make patches, Fighting Girlfriend, Fighting Shirley's. There's going to be a whole bunch the of night shit hawks. on there. Night witches. Or the night witches. That's what yes. I mean. Night witches. We're going to get on this. Yeah, all right. we will. All right. Well. Uh, I guess I'll just dive in on. Dive. To dive. My gal. Dive on in. I got my dive, wine. Dive, I'm ready. Dive. Okay. So I am covering Bessie Stringfield. And if you have heard of her, I'd be really surprised because I you had to. say that to, so often. I'd had, I had to dig for this lady. I had to, I took my shovel out and I started dig, dig, digging. And I was going through listicle after listicle. And they were all listing women who I, I was like, we I all know, know who these, these women, women are. Yeah, like Rosa Parks, we know who you are. I love the hell out of you. But this is like an underknown women's history podcast. So actually, shout out to Rejected Princesses. This is I where I found you. her. And if it was- you haven't checked out that website, just go. Just go and check it out. The art on there is amazing. Yeah. The stories, like, and he even says he embellishes them a little bit. But he uses like he does his research and then oh, it's just yeah. just kind of goes, well, there was this gap. I'm just going to fill it in with what I think happened. Yeah. And it's there. It's amazing. What's super cool is that he has a map feature where you can like each each woman he covers has a point oh, on that's the map. Cool. And then I did it, not know that there's a key for like if it's just in the book, if the woman's just on the website, that kind of stuff. And I just clicked randomly. You were like I was, this dot. 
li- that's literally what I did. I was like, what's going on in Florida? Oh, hello, Bessie, my new best friend. So <laughs> please do share. Okay. So Bessie Stringfield was born Bessie Beatrice White in North Carolina to Al- to African-American parents. Or maybe she was born in Kingston, Jamaica to a Jamaican father and a Dutch mother. Or maybe she was dropped from the sky by a stork. So Bessie was known for making up her own origin stories and really embellishing like on her legend. I really need to do that. Just start telling people random shit. Yes! I'm like, why don't I do that more? Right? But so we have, there's a lot of stuff in her story that we kind of really don't fucking know. So bear with me. Uh, that, that was, and that was part of Bessie's mystique. She was a legend and a storyteller. So what we do know is that her parents, whoever they were, died of smallpox when she was five years old. Bessie was then, was then adopted by an Irish Catholic woman and grew up in Boston. Hmm. Okay, maybe we don't even know that, but we're going to roll with it because otherwise the story is impossible to tell and nothing is real to me anymore. Right. So we're going to roll with that. That's yeah, fine. We're just... This is it. I'm committing. Herstory headcanon. So Bessie must have stood out as a uh, as a multi- multicultural families were not very common back in the early 1900s. Well, and I mean, Irish people weren't super accepted. Yeah. African-American people weren't super accepted. And then you just put them together and that's probably not the best they, People just like to take hate on a knife and spread it around like peanut butter on a sandwich and yeah. just chomp that shit down. Yeah. So terrible. Beyond that, Bessie had a special fascination with motorcycles. She first took an interest in her neighbor's bike and taught herself how to ride it. However, she refused to let her neighbor help. Quote, Mama told me I'd have a baby if I let a boy touch me, she said. Also, she probably didn't want him, like, mansplaining how to do it or telling her that her uterus would fall out because that's a thing they used to think would happen. What? Okay, I don't know if it was with motorcycles in the 1900s, but when women first started riding bicycles... They thought their uterus was going to fall out? Yes. Same All with right. skiing, I think. There were a lot of rigorous physical activities where Yet, you guys know, were like... People can horseback ride, and it's fine. I also love... It's like you can give birth to a baby where you're pushing everything in your body out, but your uterus is fine. Unless you get on a bicycle, bitch, you are screwed. <laughs> oh, my God. They just didn't want them to get, like, too excited. Yeah, like, that's what oh, is this what pleasure Is this what it's like? supposed to feel is like? Is this what my husband should be doing to me? <laughs> I feel like I do. That's not how bikes work, right? No. <laughs> what kind of bike are you riding? Email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com if you've ever climaxed while riding a bike, because I would love to hear that story. Anyway, if you couldn't guess, her adoptive mother was pretty traditional. I didn't love the idea of her daughter doing something unladylike as riding a motorcycle. Quote, my mama had a fit. Nice girls didn't go around riding motorcycles in those days. Unquote. In fact, this was still in the early days of motorcycling, so most people didn't go around riding them, especially women, and super especially black women. However, her parents eventually got over it because on her 16th birthday, she was gifted her first bike, a 1928 Indian Scout. Nice. That's awesome. For you motorcycle aficionados, I'm sure that means something to you, but to me, it's just words. While Bessie would later become a Harley Davidson fangirl, this was a good start. Yeah, she owned a fuck ton of Harleys. 
So with a thirst for freedom and a wild streak that could not be tamed, the young Bessie began her motorcycling adventures at 19 years old. While I love Bessie's sense of adventure, she stresses me the hell out because her brand of chaos is too much for me. It's too much. It's too much. So she wouldn't so much plan her motorcycle trips as she would just leave it up to fate. Oh. Yeah. So to pick a destination, she would flip a coin over a map and wherever the coin landed, she'd ride there. And this may, oh. yeah, and this may sound like one of those cute ideas that you see on Pinterest where it's like couples are like, we're going to throw a, a dart at the map and that's where we're going to take our next vacation. But this becomes even more batshit like chaotic when you realize that highways weren't even ex- in existence. They weren't a thing and wouldn't be for 25 more years. So the roads she's riding on are unpaid trash. Oh, Jesus. So this isn't like, yeah, I'm just going to hop on Ugh. Route 108 and like bike this way and like I've got my map quest here and I'm good I to go. Like she's just like fucking off on some dirt roads on her motorcycle by herself like, this sounds cool. Uh. Naturally, this led her bike to break down frequently. Thankfully, Bessie had become a skilled mechanic. Not so thankfully, though. This was because most mechanics wouldn't help her because racism. Yeah. (laughs) And also probably sexism. That too. I mean, like Audre Lorde said, intersectional... Like, civil rights is so important because all these things overlap to sometimes create this thick tapestry of bullshit. So also because of racism, Bessie was not allowed to stay in most motels. Instead, she would stay with welcoming black families she met on her travels or just sleep on her bike, which has got to be so uncomfortable. Like, there's There's no way that's comfortable. Like, how does your back... Like, what? I mean, you probably just, like, drape across it, but there's no way it's comfortable. I guess, or you could, like, maybe lean against it. But, like, isn't the bike tilted because it's on its kickstand unless you sit it, like, straight up again? I feel like I just I guess fall you just over. lay it on the ground. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they didn't have worse. kickstands back then. Oh, my God. So she was also followed by white mobs while riding through the South because oh, wow. fun. None of this stopped Bessie from traveling all across the United States. Good for her. She even made trips through the South, kind of as I mentioned before. So let's remember this is when Jim Crow laws were in full effect and violence against black people was super common. And accepted. accepted. Yeah, that's a horrible thing, but it was. Bessie would later recall, quote, All along the way, wherever I rode, the people were overwhelmed to see a Negro woman riding a motorcycle, end quote. It was like it was just like what through her travels. Bessie would also perform for spectators doing carnival stunts on her bike, including the popular riding on the walls or upside down in a cage bits. That's she, cool. Yeah, she earned money from these performances to fund her rides. So she's like also kind of a circus performer. Yeah, a little bit unafraid and always up for a challenge. Bessie also entered flat track motorcycle races she would assume the identity of a man beat everyone's asses and proceed to reveal that she was a woman while this would disqualify her and technically deny her the win in whatever prize was being offered everyone was left knowing that they had been beaten by a black woman nice and it would haunt them until they came to grips with their internalized sexism and racism yeah probably After Bessie's adoptive mother died, she moved to Miami, Florida, a.k.a. America's penis for our international listeners. Yes, guys, Florida's that state. It's the one that looks like a penis. It's the one at the bottom that looks like a penis. It's the one that every international person knows because it's so recognizable. Oh, the the dick? Yes. 
Yes, that's Florida. So living up to its unfortunate shape, Florida was kind of a dick to Bessie (laughs) when she tried to get her driver's license because I guess she didn't have one up until now or maybe she needed her Florida license. Probably. I don't know. She was denied due to a stunning combination of racism and sexism. Not one to take- Shocker. Yeah, like- I keep saying it, but I feel like everyone's like, Emily, we get it. Racism and sexism is a thing and it's awful. You don't have to keep pointing out why people are being assholes. But apparently I do because this is still shit today. Anyway. Breathe. Not one to take things lying down. Bessie took this up with the police captain himself. The captain made her a deal. If she could pass his test, she'd get her license. The test was incredibly difficult and involved a series of complex stunts that Bessie had to perform on her bike. He had expected Get it, girl. Yeah. He had expected her to either back down or fail miserably. Instead, Bessie passed with flying colors and blew the dude's mind. Needless to say, she earned her license. That's the sound of that dude's mind being blown. He's like, you're a black woman doing all these cool things. I can't understand it. Wow. But I guess here's your license. Yeah. When World War II came knocking, Bessie was ready to serve. She became a dispatch rider or civilian courier for the U.S. Army, carrying documents to and from stateside military bases, which I guess is not something I've ever really thought of. No. When I think of America and World War II, I always go over to Europe or the Pacific. I don't think about what needed to happen stateside. Right. To become a courier, she had to complete rigorous training, which she did on her own 61 cubic inch Harley Davidson. There's actually this iconic picture of her with the spike, and it is stunning. Is it? Yes. It's blue, and it's pretty. And she had she had a, a thing for blue, and I think I get into that in like two sentences, I guess. Uh, okay. This was one of the 27 Harleys she would own throughout her life. She would say of her bikes, quote, it's gotta be blue and it's gotta be new. I never bought anything used except husbands. Sexy quotes oh, except husbands. That's great. During her service, Bessie rode across the United States eight times, becoming the first black woman to ride across the U.S. solo. While she faced some serious shit during her service, like a white man in a truck trying to run her off the road and other various racist shit, she also found a strong sense of camaraderie. Bessie was one of seven in her all-black unit. While she was the only woman, the unit supported each other and accepted her. So this is kind of bringing it back from your story where the dudes were like, hey, we love you and we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Gonna deliver some documents (laughs) to the army. And for the army. All right. Uh, Hopefully, I won't get sued because I made that into a parody. Parody law! Throughout her life, chug my wine after that. <laughs> throughout her life, Bessie struggled to find a place where she belonged. She faced rejection for being black and for being a woman. She also lost three children in infancy, which oh, just that's sucks. Being accepted by her unit was a time in which she felt at home, accepted, and as if she had a family. After four years of service in the army, Bessie became a nurse and founded the Iron Horse Motorcycle Club. Nice. It was during this time her motorcycle prowess began to gain attention of the local press who dubbed her the Motorcycle Queen of Miami. Nice. But that was after. So first they dubbed her the Negro Motorcycle Queen of Miami. 
And then they were like, maybe just motorcycle queen. Like, we don't have to qualify. Like, it's great that she's black, but they just were like. They were like, "Mm, maybe maybe let's just not. Maybe Negro isn't like an okay thing to say anymore. Good. So Bessie would lead parades of male bikers on her motorcycle in the annual Miami parade. Which is cool. She bought a house which became a biker hangout for the Iron Horse Motorcycle Club. Allegedly, a different biker gang rolled up at a party Bessie was having uninvited. Being the badass that she was, Bessie just stared them down until she left. She's like, bitches, until I have... she left no, or until they left. they left? Sorry, until okay. they left. <laughs> I was no, like, why did she that's leave? That's what I would do. I'd just be like, yeah, I'm staring at you dirty as I'm backing out the, the well, I mean, the but door. it's her house, yes. so... As I mentioned earlier, Bessie lost three children in infancy. She also married and divorced six times. Used husbands. Yeah, basically. Her third husband gave her the last name she would become most known by, Stringfield. All of her husbands were much younger than her, and when she was interviewed at 70 years old, Bessie asserted that she, quote, wouldn't have a man over 35 even now. (laughs) I love this woman. She's a cougar. So Bessie was a natural storyteller and would regale anyone who would listen with amazing tales of her adventures. Many people who knew knew her recalled different accounts of her life and a lot of truths are still unknown, kind of as I mentioned. Robert Scott Thomas, who had been a child while Bessie worked as a housekeeper for his family, recalled, quote, I don't think she ever told me a lie. It was the dead nuts right. What? That's how he said, like, it was the definite truth. But he said dead nuts right, which is exclusively how I'm referring to something as dead super true. nuts right. There's fake news, and then there's dead nuts right. There is no in-between. <laughs> which, which is real news? Oh, my. Yeah. No, it's the dead nuts right news. That's going to be our new news station. Stay tuned. Stay Hasht- tuned. Secondary podcast coming. Hashtag dead nuts right cast. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bessie's niece, Esther Bennett, 86 at the time, recalled something a bit different. Quote, she lied. (laughs) Her mother's name was Maggie Cherry. Her father was James White. I don't know anything about Jamaica. She was never adopted. Unquote. There are records to actually back up Esther's version. So this whole Jamaica origin story was probably bullshit. But she just said she was never adopted. No, she said, I don't know anything about... Oh, yeah. No, you're right. She was never adopted. So the way I told the story is also probably super wrong. I don't know. As Bessie got older, she became the kind of old lady that we all want want to be and want to know. She never stopped riding, and she would roll up to church on her bike. Even when Bessie was diagnosed with an enlarged heart and ordered ordered by her doctor to stop riding, she wouldn't. Quote... If I don't ride, I won't live long. And so I never quit. She's like, well, either I'm I'm either going to die doing what I love or die miserable. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. She lived to be 82 anyway. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Dying on February 16th, 1993. So like right before my second birthday. Robert, who I mentioned before, was named executor and beneficiary of Bessie's estate as she had no known relatives at the time. So she's got this niece floating around there, but I don't. maybe they just didn't connect. Because I didn't yeah. even know she had siblings until Esther comes in saying, no, she was a fucking liar. 
right? Like, you never 86, mentioned siblings. 86-year-old Esther sitting in her nursing home. She's like, that fucking liar. Oh, my. Bessie doesn't know shit. Mm-mm. <laughs> so, legacy. Before we get a bunch of emails about how I fucked this up, there is so much different information, timelines, and more about Bessie's life, and I did the best I could to cohesively put the pieces together in a compelling narrative. For example... Please, please don't shoot Emily. Yeah. Please don't don't add us about this. Here's the thing. Add us about other things. None though. of you guys have heard of her anyway, so shut up. <laughs> I'm getting real mean. So, for example, some resources put her move to Miami in 1950 and the encounter with the police captain after World War II, while others stated that this happened before World War II and that the police captain even worked with her as like a military courier instructor and that they became friends. But I found that in one place, could not back it up anywhere else, so I didn't include it, but her three head cannon, she showed the- They co- were bros. Like she taught the cop the error of his ways and they became best friends. And yeah. that was kind of her thing. She always tried to like bring people together Versus just like, fuck you, even though that was like also her energy. So I encourage you to do your own reading and research because her story is truly incredible. Much of Bessie's life is steeped in legend and mystery. Only Bessie knows exactly what was fact and what was legend. Anne Ferrer, an old friend and author who's working on a memoir about their friendship, which I'm very excited to read. Yeah, that's awesome. Said, quote, Bessie's running from her early past does not discount or in any way lessen her unusual achievements as an adult and that is why Bessie continues to inspire new generations and rightfully so so her origins are kind of in the dark but all this like crazy motorcycle right like what she did actually happened 100% true it totally happened she's totally a badass In 1990, the American Motorcyclist Association paid tribute to Bessie in their Heroes of Harley Davidson exhibit exhibition as she owned 27 of their bikes. Jesus Christ. In 2000, the American Motorcyclist Association again also created the Bessie Stringfield Award to recognize those who introduced others to the joys of motorcycling. Yeah, like outreach. In 2002, nine years after her death, Bessie was inducted into the... uh, American Motorcyclist Association or AMA Motorcycle Museum Hall of Fame in Pink Picker Pinkerton. It's it's spelled Pickerington, Ohio. Okay, Is Pickerington. Pickering- I'm really doubting if I spelled that right. Pickerington, Ohio. Email us if I'll that's say, where if you anyone live. knows where <laughs> that museum I, is. Because I want to say us. Pickerton or Pinkerton, but it's Pickerington. And I just... Okay. Female bikers, even to this day, honor Bessie and her legacy, holding rides in her honor. They'll, like, make up shirts and, like, they're Bessie's babes, and it's amazing. Bessie was featured in the New York... another patch. Yes. Bessie's babes. Bessie's babes. Bessie was featured in the New York Times Overlook series that publishes obituaries of people who have likely... who, Who likely wouldn't have been featured in obituaries in the past, a.k.a. people of color, women, and poor people. And we've, we've talked about yeah, them before. We have, and we said good on you. Yep. I mean, it's a little late, but so spe- better late than never. Right. So speaking of the Overlook series, the opening line of her obituary really captures her essence. Quote, somewhere between myth, memory, and motorcycles, Bessie B. Stringfield was great. And this is the part where I cry like a bitch. Like, that's. 
that's so cool. And it's like, hey, that's a really maybe great... some of her stuff is embellished, but she was still an incredible woman yeah, and a that's, badass. That's and she did great. all these cool things. Because even if, you know. If I, when I die, I'm not going to say if I ever die. One day I will die. <laughs> no, no. Um, you yeah. have to write something like that. Oh, that's a lot. Of pr- I'm just going to steal this. Somewhere between myth, memory, and podcasting. Perfect. Kelly was great. <laughs> Perfect. Kelly was a co-host. <laughs> that's bitchy. No. <laughs> yeah, that was. that's a little mean. That is. All right. She was a great sidekick. Yes. Thanks. Aw, she was my best blonde. My little blonde bombshell. That was a sexy, sexy wink. Quotes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the quote is going to be, sexy finger quotes, somewhere between myth, memory, <laughs> and podcasting. Kelly Gamel was great. Wink, 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 wink. nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But seriously, that is that is a great way to start. Right. Like, especially about her, because they're like, yeah, we're not quite sure of her origins, but she did all this great shit, and we know that happened. Yeah. So Kelly, I really like this story. What are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? Um, sorry, I shouldn't do that. That's probably really annoying into a microphone. <laughs> um, Emily can cut that out through the magic of editing. People will just be like, "What are you talking about?" No, I'm gonna leave it in now, so they know what I have to New. fucking put up with. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me such a weird look to like, why are you making that noise? You guys. This is my life. <laughs> um, Our podcasts are actually four hours long, but they get down to an hour because I cut out all that. <laughs> just cut out all Kelly's <laughs> All the bullshit. mouth sounds. Um, I hope I don't make that many mouth sounds. I mean, technically talking is a mouth sound. So our podcast is all mouth sounds. All mouth sounds and great mouth feel. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And great ear feel. Oh, hopefully. Um, I am thankful... I almost made the noise again. Because that's like my thinking noise. It's the yeah. noise I make when I think. Um, for good friends. Because both, like, I went and I made some food for a friend that had her baby early. I would have made her food anyways. but um, So I went and visited her today. And that was just, you know, a good time to catch up. Because we haven't seen each other in like two weeks since she, since she had the kid. Um, and because I work from home. And then, you know, hanging out with you. And then just like... It's been, like, kind of a rough week, and just having people there and having, like, things to look forward to has been a really big help. That's good. I'm glad. How about you? What are you thankful for? Um, so I'm thankful. Th- this Me is... not making mouth sounds? No. <laughs> this is kind of a, a, a say their name, but also kind of a thankful thing, and maybe I'll mention it, like, as our next say their name. I don't know. So, um, Jared's cousin is... So him and his wife are trying to adopt a little boy from China and they already have one son that they adopted from China and this little boy that they're trying to adopt he I actually I think I brought her up because I think you did mention her once. She yeah. had four strokes yep. this last summer and so while she's dealing with all this adoption shit they're trying to adopt this sweet little boy he's got like some serious some intense medical stuff, yeah. you know, and that's one of the reasons that they're adopting him because they know he really needs a home and she's a pediatric nurse. So that's like right up her alley. Um, so she had first she had the four strokes and she got through that while going through this adoption process and they had their tickets booked. And then the coronavirus happened. Yeah, that's and sucks. where he is living is Wuhan, where the like epicenter of this outbreak is. And so there was a she, so she went on the local news and like talked yeah, about it. And uh, you know, it's the the thing that sucks is 
they were going to go within the next few days. Like, they had their they tickets didn't they have bought. their tickets booked? Yeah. Yeah, everything was ready to go. They just needed to get there and get him and bring him home. But this has thrown everything up into the air. Obviously, there's no travel in or out. Luckily, as far as we know, not, there have been no outbreaks in the orphanage. They're limiting visitors and, like, people yeah. coming in and so out. he's okay. He's okay. But they can't get him. And they're not going to get a lot of information because alerting you know the adoptive parents in this crisis is not like their top priority no. they're trying to take care of the kids they're trying to you know make sure no one's getting sick and i get that i yeah, totally it's understandable get it. but all she has now is to wait and she posted something on facebook just kind of updating everyone on what was going on she listed in like four points like one we don't know what's going on you know to yeah the the city's under quarantine blah oh. blah blah so she kind of goes through all the basic stuff and she goes number four Four strokes did not stop me. A worldwide health crisis is not going to stop me either. And that was just like, oh, my God. She's like, one way or another, eventually, I'm taking this kid home. Yeah, like, he's coming home. He is our son. I am his mommy, and I'm going to bring him home. So help me God and anything that gets in my way. Like, it was just, and I know she's really anxious and upset, but, like, She's just such a badass. And right. that, like, gives me energy, like, seeing her tackle this. Yeah, like, I remember when you told me about queen. it, and I'm like, that is fucking amazing. And then, of course, I saw yeah. the, the article pop up, and I was like, I know this person, kind of. I'm reading this article. Which is, it's kind of funny, because, like, the day before I saw the the article and the video, I was I was at the gym, and they had, like, a thing about the coronavirus. I was like, yeah. I'm surprised no one's interviewed her, because that's, like... I a mean, big thing. It's yeah. a big thing. And, and it's, it's a, a local, local connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, oh, nope, they totally did. <laughs> I know. I thought that was really cool. Because I know there's a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily be comfortable opening up about something like yeah. that. So that's, that's I thought that was really cool of her. But, you know, it's trying to look on the bright side, I guess. You know, right? the, they're they're not stuck there. They're not at risk of getting it, you That's know. True. Um, there are plenty of people that are stuck there. Yeah, you know, as as far as we know, their son is safe. They're, you know, limiting access. He's healthy. Yeah, so, you know. Just, there are some upsides, but yeah. still, it's so, a rough situation. You guys, whether you pray, send good vibes, or you ascribe to your local wishing well, send some positive vibes to that family because they fucking need it. Yes. But yeah, so I'm, I don't know. I'm thankful that things are... <laughs> not as bad as they could be but also thankful that she's such a badass like that's really inspiring yeah it is so all right well thank you so much for listening to another episode of whining about herstory please you know we're gonna switch up this ending a little oh, bit because i feel called out by a recent uh post on lady pod squad it wasn't directed towards us but i definitely felt oh, I it 100 well and the thing is i read it first and yes. i screenshot it and i was like emily so so there was like this uh podcast support group thing where and it I was mean, like we, we love lady pod squad no no, no, no this wrong. is not against oh, them okay this is not against them but it was just kind of a general hey here's some advice for anyone who needs it and they were saying, like, switch up your endings because people don't want to listen to the same bullshit over and over again, the same bye. And if you feel called out by this, this is for you. And I was, I was like, like I'm feeling quite attacked oh, right yeah. now. 100% was. Uh, shields are going up. Self-esteem going up. But I mean, she, it wasn't necessarily about not repeating because she said it's fine if you, ha- you say the same thing. She just said people don't like hearing you say bye. And I'm like. 
Okay. See, I always skip the last like 15 seconds of a podcast anyway when they're doing their spiel. Yeah. So right. I don't care. But anyway, find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Email us at whinyaboutherstory at gmail.com. Hit us up on Patreon. We're everywhere, you guys. Yes, everywhere. 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 We're in your heads. Turn around. We're right there. <gasps> <laughs> ha, you turned around and you didn't see anything. I saw that, though. <laughs> We're right there. We're right there. I fucking We're in that see. bush. No, not that bush. That bush. <laughs> the other bush. The one that looks like it hasn't been watered as much. Water that shit. God damn it. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whitey About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And water your bush. Woo! <laughs> God damn us. <laughs>